If you have your Bible, open it, please, to the book of Proverbs, chapter number 27. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have them in the pew rack in front of you. But I wish you would either that Bible or your own Bible, take it and open it to Proverbs 27, because I want us to look at what would be considered one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. In fact, if we were making a list of the top 10 verses in the book of Proverbs, I guarantee you this verse would be on that list. Now, Sometimes I'll read through the book of Proverbs in a month's time. Sometimes I don't. I'm not doing that now. But if I were doing that now, or if you were doing that now, yesterday on the 27th of the month, you would have read the verse that we're going to be looking at today. And I want us to begin by reading this verse or looking at on the screen from the NIV. Notice what it says. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Let's say that together. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, I use the New King James most of the time. Listen to how the New King James says it. It gives us a little additional insight. As iron sharpens iron, now that part's the same, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend, literally the face of of his friend. What does this mean? It means that if you have the right kind of friends, they're going to brighten your face and they're going to sharpen your blade, your spiritual blade. And all of us need from time to time to have our blade sharpened. If you have ever mowed yards, you know that after several months of mowing, especially if you mow a lot of yards, you know that the blade gets dull. And so you have to take that blade to the shop and they can sharpen that blade. And the next time you go out to mow, man, that blade is just really smooth. It's a clean cut on that yard. Well, what happens to a lawnmower blade often happens to us. Life has a way of making us dull. Now by dull, I don't mean boring, although it can include being boring and we shouldn't be boring, but sometimes it can be that way. But life has a way of making us making us dull. And so we need to be sharpened. I don't know how it is with you, but I don't think it would be any different than it is with me. Sometimes in life, our faith becomes dull. I mean, we're just not trusting God as crisply and as quickly and as sharply and as purely as we need to. Our faith is dull. Sometimes in life, our convictions become dull. Maybe three years ago, five years ago, there was something in your life and you said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's right. And now time has passed. You look at other things happening in the world and you say, well, hey, what other people are doing is not as bad as this. And so maybe I'll watch something I used to wouldn't have watched. I'll drink something I used to wouldn't have drink, have drunk, drink, drunk, or have drunk, drunk. I'll consume something I wouldn't have consumed. I'll go to a party I probably wouldn't have gone to. I'll get in a relationship that, man, three, four, five years ago, I would have said, no, I don't need to be in that relationship. But now, you know, I feel a little, it's not that bad. What's happening? Our convictions get dull. Sometimes our passion gets dull. Our enthusiasm, this happens to all of us. Our excitement for God can get dull. You can come to church on a Sunday, for example. If, I'm dull, if I have let my blade get dull, you come in here on Sunday and it's, it's, I'm dull and maybe you've let your blade get dull and, and you're not as sharp as you are. It's kind of like the blah leading the blah, right? I mean, I'm dull, you're dull, service is dull, everything's dull. We don't want it to be like that. We want, I want to be sharp and you want to be sharp and we want to be able to sharpen one another. And so the question I want us to think about today is how can we sharpen our blade? How, what can I do to sharpen your blade? 
What can you do to sharpen my blade? And how can we sharpen the blades of other people? I want to just mention several things today. First of all, we sharpen our blade, our spiritual blade, by being in close, consistent contact with other Christians. There's something about being together that sharpens our blade. Look at our verse again, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron. Just say that with me again. As iron sharpens iron. Notice it says as iron sharpens iron. It doesn't say as wood sharpens iron or as gold sharpens iron or as copper sharpens iron. No, it says as iron sharpens iron. These two metals are made out of the same substance. And so that says to me that we need to be around those who have the same spiritual DNA that we have. Because we have, as Christians, living in us, the Holy Spirit of God, and what does he do? He sharpens us, and he, and we can sharpen each other because we're made out of the same substance. There's something about coming together that helps us. The Christian life, think about it this way, the Christian life is more like football than it is golf. In golf, the golfer goes out there and hits the ball, and at the end of 18 rounds, whatever his or her score was is only dependent on him or her, and it's just one per- it's a one-person sport. Well, in football, it's a team sport. There's a quarterback, running back, lineman, receivers, defensive backs, defensive linemen, linebackers, and everybody on the team has a role, a responsibility, something they're supposed to do. They have a common goal to move the ball down the field to get in the end zone, to score more points than the other team, to prevent the other team from scoring points on us. And that's kind of how the Christian life is. We have a common goal to grow in our relationship with God. We have a common enemy, the devil, and we have each other. And if I'm doing what I ought to be doing, and if you're doing what you ought to be doing, we sharpen each other and we function well as a team. It's interesting in the New Testament, someone has said, I don't know if it's precise or not. Someone has said a hundred times in the New Testament, we read the words one another or each other. It's a one another and an each other. It's a to get, Christianity is a together religion. Let's look at some of these verses. Jesus said in John 13, love one another. Notice it doesn't just say love God. And that's the most important thing. That's the first commandment. But the second commandment is we're supposed to love one another. And then we read in Hebrews, encourage each other daily. There's something about You know, we need encouragement. We need to build each other up. In fact, I think these next verses, we go to Romans here. There it is. Build each other up. Now, why does the Bible say that? Because God knows that the world that we live in is tearing us down. Man, this, the world today is more angry than I've ever seen at any time in my life. It's angry. And the world is tearing people down and it's pulling people apart and it's demonizing those who look at issues differently than we do. God says, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to build each other up. Up, edify each other. And then we read in Romans also, instruct one another. What is that? It, some of the older translations say, admonish one another. Literally, sometimes we need correction. Sometimes in my life, I might need somebody to correct me. And sometimes in your life, you might need somebody to say, now you're not doing right. You're not thinking right. You're going down a wrong road. And we need to instruct each other. And then in Galatians, bear one another's burdens. Sometimes in life, we have burdens, man. We have problems and they're just weighing us down. Well, God says, now I'm gonna help you with your problem, but also help each other. Lift that load and lift that burden. And then in James, look at this. Confess your sins to the priest, to the pastor, 
Well, there's not anything wrong with that, but here's what it's saying. Confess your sins to each other. In other words, if I've offended you, I owe you an apology. If you've offended me, you owe me an apology. Sometimes we have to confess our sins to each other. Sometimes we have to confess to a trusted friend, maybe a sin we're struggling with that doesn't even involve that other person so they can help us. So confess your sins to each other and watch this and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's something about praying for each other that has a healing effect. I'm so encouraged. I hate to keep mentioning every week our students over here, but a few weeks ago, these high school students went to Los Angeles. Many of them did to the Dream Center and they were working and ministering to people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, homeless, all kind of problems in their life. And they went out there and invested their lives for a week helping. On the last night of, of our students being out there, they had some kind of a worship service just with our own students. And Adam Thompson was sharing this with me the other day. And one of the students in our group was going through, they were having a heavy burden and they had a real problem and something bad was going on in their life. And Adam said to that student, would it be okay if we got all of the other students together and we had a prayer time for you? And that student said, well, yes, I believe that would be okay. And so they got all the students together. I want you to see this picture. It just touched my heart when I saw it the other day. All these students there in Los Angeles, gathered around their friend, praying for their friend, laying their hands on their friend, doing what James said. They're praying for one another. And that student, he went on to share, was not only blessed and encouraged, but much of the load that that student had been carried was just lifted off of them in that prayer service. And so it is a beautiful thing. And so we sharpen our blade by being in close, consistent contact with other Christians. Again, there's something about being together that is a blessing to us. I, I had this experience. I have it all the time, but I had it yesterday. I called a lady in our church. She and her husband, longtime members here. He's gone to be with the Lord. She has moved to Kingwood to live with her family, and they're kind of taking care of each other now. And, and I just hadn't called this lady in a long time. Her name is Lorena Childers. She's has a very special place in my heart. Probably 20 years ago, she and Joe, her husband, invited me to their house one night for some fried chicken. It is one of the best meals I ever had in my life. And not only was the food good, what we talked about that night was good, and it was very edifying and very helpful for me. Well, I called her yesterday and said, Lorraine, I hadn't talked to you in a while. How in the world are you doing? And she told me. She kind of gave me an update. And I said, Lorraine, I knew she wouldn't mind me asking this. I said, how old are you now? You know, some people you're not supposed to ask that to, but she did, I knew she wouldn't care. And she gave me an answer I've never heard anybody give. She said, John, I'm 96 and three quarters. <laughs> she said, I'll be 97 in December, but I'm 96 and three quarters. And I was trying to think how to respond. What are you supposed to say? I, you know, I, I didn't want to say, I didn't know you were that old because I didn't think she was that. I thought, don't say it that way. And I said something that might have been worse. I said, well, Lorena, I just didn't know you were that far along. <laughs> I don't know how that came along. But anyway, we had a good conversation. And I said to her, I said, Lorena, what is the secret to being 96 and three quarters and still having a clear mind and you're filled with the spirit? And even though she has all kind of eye problems, the family's got her some kind of an electron. She can read the Bible, a giant print Bible through this method. And uh, she just loves the Lord. I said, what's the secret to being 96 and three quarters and doing as well as you're doing. Of course, the first secret is God's got to give you the health to live that long, right? And that's not even a secret. So that's a, that's a given. But she said, John, for me, and it was so good, I wrote it down after I talked to her last night. She said, John, for me, the secret 
is to serve God every day and to accomplish what he has planned for me on that day. She said, when I wake up in the morning, my thought process is, how can I serve God today? How can I serve God today by serving somebody else? And she said, sometime a nurse will come to see me or a doctor, and I have the opportunity to encourage them and to bless them. It was such a, a great meeting, a conversation. And then she said to me at the end, she said, you know, John, one thing I've learned in life, I've learned not to worry but to trust God, that got my attention because last week I mentioned you, I've not completely mastered this worrying deal. And she said this, she said, why would I worry about what God is going to allow in my future one day? And as we said last week, that's many times what we worry about tomorrow, what's gonna happen. She said, I've learned this. Why should I worry about what God might allow into my life? Because he's never gonna allow anything into my life that is not ultimately gonna be used for my good and so that it can be a blessing to somebody else. It was so encouraging to me. And then she said something else I wrote down. I, she didn't know I was taking mental notes of this conversation. She said, you know, John, I've learned this. She said, I've learned that when we get saved, the Holy Spirit births himself in us. And not only that, the Holy Spirit births himself in everybody else who gets saved. She said, that's why it's so wonderful when we can come together at church, because she said, at church, all of these Christians are coming together, and we all have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. And she said, when you get that many Christians in the same room with the same Holy Spirit living in them, it's a powerful thing. And she's sharing that. And I'm thinking to myself, I call Lorena to encourage her. And yet just the opposite is happening. She's encouraging me. The heart that gives gathers. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Lorena, would you mind if I prayed for you? And we talked for a long time and she said, that'd be fine. And I prayed for her. And then after that prayer, I thought, what am I doing? She's more spiritual than I am. I said, Lorena, would you mind praying for me and for my family? And she prayed for us. And uh, I'm saying I called her to bless her and she ended up blessing me. So how can we, you're here today, say, John, I'm a little dull. Faith's dull. Convictions are dull. Passion's dull. Energy's dull. How can I sharpen my blade? Well, you've already done the first thing. You're here in church. That's why it's so important to be in a connection group, in a Sunday school class, in a student ministry. Why? Because we come together in close contact with each other, and that's how we get sharpened. But there's a second thing. I want to kind of press this a little farther. We sharpen our blade by allowing others to sharpen us even when it's painful. You know, if you're gonna be sharpened, you've gotta let somebody sharpen you. If me or my dad or any other preacher gets up here and preaches something, and we're talking, for example, about sin, and we just say it straight on, and you say, now that hurts, that's painful, that offends me. Well, before you write it off, ask yourself this question. Is that true? Is it from the Bible? Because if it is, what is God doing? He's sharpening you with his own word. The word of God is living and active and more powerful than any two-edged sword. And so we have, to, we, have to, uh, we have to allow. Sometimes we have to allow another person, maybe a spouse, maybe for the students, a, a friend, a parent, a connection group leader, a coach, a teacher, an uncle, an aunt, somebody. And they look at your life and they're older than you and they're farther along than you. And they look at your life. They say, I'm concerned about some of the decisions you're making. And they confront you on that. And it's, it's painful. You know, I, I get that. I've had that image in my mind all week as iron sharpens iron. Here's a piece of iron. Here's a piece of iron. How does the iron sharpen iron? They sharpen each other by coming in close contact and then rubbing up against each other. 
And when they rub up against each other, there's friction. And I imagine if we could talk to that iron while this is happening, if that iron was not an inanimate object, but a real person, that iron would say, this is very painful what's happening to me right now. This hurts. And yet at the end of the process, the iron says, man, that hurt, but look how sharp I am now. And so we have to let other people sharpen us even if it's painful, even if they're telling us what we don't want to hear because it confronts us at the point of our sin or our weakness. Many of us here today are familiar with the name Martin Luther. Back in the 1500s, Martin Luther was a, was a monk and he lived in a monastery and he was very active in the church of his day and yet he had no peace with God. And he did everything he could to gain peace with God. He prayed all the time. He fasted. He went long periods of time with no food. When he would sin, he would take a whip and beat himself just about till he made himself bleed. Or maybe sometimes he did make himself bleed. He tried everything he could do to make himself right with God because the church of that day was teaching that that's how you get right with God. Prayer, fasting, Beat yourself to show God how sorry you are for your sins. And after you sin, here's what the church was teaching. Bring your money to the church. Bring your money to the minister. It was called indulgences. And if you bring the right amount of money to the minister, then the minister will forgive your sins. And Martin Luther was doing all that. And he had no peace with God. And one day, here's, you're talking about a man committed to God. He's a monk. In a monastery, none of us have that dedication to God today. To live in a, as a monk or as a, I mean, I'm not saying we don't have that dedication, but we're not doing that. He was in a monastery and he was preparing a Bible study for those under his care. And he was studying out of Romans chapter one one morning. And he came across that verse quoting from Habakkuk in the Old Testament, Romans chapter one, this phrase, the just shall live by faith. Say that with me. The just shall live by faith. And God used the iron, the sharpness of his sword, the word to convict Luther. And for the first time in his life, Luther's spiritual eyes were open. And he said, so that's how I get right with God. Not through prayer, not through fasting, not through beating myself, not through giving indulgences to the church. So the minute, the way that I make myself right with God or that I get right with God is by placing my faith in Jesus Christ. The just shall live by faith. And in that moment, Luther put his faith and placed his faith in Jesus Christ and he was reborn and he was saved. And from that moment on, the Protestant Reformation was on. And Luther began to preach, it's not by praying it's not by giving your money to the minister at the church. It's not by fasting. It's not by beating yourself. It's not by being a monk. It's not by living in a monastery. The way to be made right with God is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ, he gives us himself and he fills our hearts with peace. That was Luther. We would not be in a Baptist church today without Martin Luther. We are part of a, the Protestant world. Why is it called Protestant? Because Luther protested the teaching of the church in that day that taught you could be saved through prayer, through fasting, through beating yourself, and through giving money to the church. And Luther said, that's not right. I tried. It didn't work. It's through faith in Christ. And the Protestant Reformation was on. Now, you would think a man like Martin Luther who had such an encounter with God, such a clear experience about faith, 
such an incredible influence for the kingdom. You would think a man like Martin Luther, I mean, nobody really, maybe Billy Graham would be the exception, but with the exception of Billy Graham, in the last 500 years, nobody has impacted Christianity like Martin Luther. You would think that a man like that would never let his faith get dull, never let his passion get dull. You would think, man, a guy like that, I need to be around him. I mean, just hearing his story inspires me. Not so. Martin Luther was still human. We're all human. We need to remember this. Luther went through some things in his life, painful things, hard things, confusing things, and he couldn't understand why God, if God is truly good, why God would allow him to go through what he was going through. And as he began to question God and doubt God and wonder about that, he almost just threw up his hands in total despair and frustration, and he fell into a depression. And for several days there in the home that he shared with his wife, Catherine, he just went into one of the rooms and secluded himself, sequestered himself. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't come out. He was depressed. Catherine did everything she could to encourage her husband. She reminded him, God is good. We can trust God. He's still in control. She did everything she knew. It wasn't getting through to Luther. Iron sharpens iron. Catherine said, God, what can I do? I've got to confront him a little more firmly. I, I've got to help him to see that the way he's responding to this is not right. It's not good for him. It's just not true. And, and God, how? here was the idea she came up with. She put on a black dress. She put on black shoes. She put on a black hat. She put on black gloves. She put a black veil over her face. And one day, dressed like that, she walked into Martin's room, the room where he had sequestered himself. And when Luther saw her dressed like that, he said, Catherine, why are you dressed for a funeral? Who died? And she said, Martin, didn't you hear? God died. God is dead. And Luther, always the orthodox theologian, said, how dare you say that God is dead? That's blasphemy for you to say that of God. And wise Catherine said, it is no worse for me to say that God is dead than it is for you to live as though God is dead. Martin, you're living as though God has abdicated his throne. You're living as though God is not in control. And I'm telling you, God's not dead. God's alive. What did she do? She instructed him. She confronted him. I imagine if we could have talked to Luther after he got that sermon from Catherine, he would have said, that hurt when my wife said that to me. But what was happening? Iron was sharpening iron. And history tells us that from that moment, Luther recommitted his life to Christ and he reaffirmed his faith in God. And he went on and he learned how to trust God even when things don't make sense. And so today we remind ourselves even when we go through difficult circumstances, God's not dead. He's still alive. He's still on his throne. And he's still very much in control of every single detail of our life. And the challenge is to say, God, I trust you when nothing makes sense. I trust you, God, when I can't see the way forward. I trust you, God, when I can't understand what's happening. I trust you that you're gonna take care of me and see me through. We sharpen our blade by allowing others to sharpen us even when it's painful. You still listen, say amen. Not only those two things are true, but the third thing is true. This is the final thing. We sharpen our blade. Now, you may never have thought about this. What I've said so far pretty much makes sense, but this one you may never have thought of. We sharpen our blade by sharpening others. There's something about 
sharpening somebody else that sharpens us. Here you have a piece of iron. Here you have a piece of iron. This iron is sharpening this iron. There it goes. But at the end of this iron sharpening this iron, this iron is sharper. And the same with this. We sharpen our blade by sharpening others. Look at this verse in Galatians. Through love, we have to do it in love. Through love, serve one another. And then this verse Uh, The next verse in Acts, Jesus said this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Say that with me. It is more blessed to give than to receive. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying there's something about giving to somebody else that even though it will be a blessing to them and a help to them, it's going to end up being a bigger blessing to you. You give somebody who's going through a hard time a $50 bill or a $100 bill, and you were a blessing to them. But you rest assured on this. God will see to it that that act of generosity turns around and becomes even a bigger blessing for you. The generous soul, Proverbs tells us in chapter 11, will be made rich. He who waters others will be watered himself. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And yet we don't think of it that way. We think of, man, my blade's dull. We come to church on Sunday where we did the right thing. Now we're in close contact with other believers. You've got your Bible. There you sit on your pew. You say, John, my blade's dull, man. My faith is dull. My passion's dull. My enthusiasm is dull. My vision's dull. It's all dull. John, sharpen me this morning. Well, I'm doing all I can. I got the Bible. I'm preaching as hard as I know how to preach. But the same Bible that I'm preaching from, trying to sharpen you, says this. One of the ways you sharpen your blade is by sharpening somebody else. Those of you who teach a Sunday school class or a connection group know that when the lesson's over, it did you as much good or maybe more good as it did the class. I I have that experience in preaching. There's something about preparing a sermon, praying about a sermon, and preaching a sermon that ends up, I'm preaching it to you. I'm not telling you anything I don't already know. I've already prepared. I'm preaching this to you, And yet it turns out to be a blessing to me. Listen, I don't know what my preaching does for you, but it does wonders for me. I love it because I'm I'm sharpening you and I'm being sharpened in the process. Everyone needs an outlet. And we're trying to figure out here at First Baptist under the leadership of God. And we need to, we've not, we've certainly not mastered this, but we want to know what can we do at the church to give everybody, every student, every adult an opportunity to serve others, to sharpen others so that you yourself could be sharpened. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, or even if you haven't, I want to show you a map today of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to walk back here to it. I hope I don't get in such a dark area that you can't hear me, but I'm still here, okay, even if you can't see me so good. This is the nation of Israel right here. It's a a thin, long nation. It's about 180 miles long. To the north is Lebanon, Right this way is Syria, and down here is Jordan. Here is Egypt over here. And you see this body of water running from the top of Israel all the way to the bottom. It begins north of where this map is at Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a mountain in northern Israel. It is believed that that was a location in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured, and his clothes became as white as snow, and Moses and Elijah came and encouraged Jesus about the crucifixion. So the headwaters of the Jordan River are formed right up there at the foothills of Mount Hermon, and then they come down into the Sea of Galilee. 
So much of what we read in the New Testament about the life and ministry of Jesus took place around the Sea of Galilee. We always think about Jerusalem. Well, that's where he was crucified, buried, and rose again. But Jesus never lived in Jerusalem. He lived up here by the Sea of Galilee. His childhood home was in Nazareth, located right here. His Cana, right in here, was where he performed his first miracle. Capernaum, right here, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee is where he headquartered his public ministry. This, of course, the Mediterranean Sea. So most of what Jesus did in the Bible is around the Sea of Galilee. So the Jordan River drops off into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee receives the water, and then it gives the water, and it drops it off all the way down here into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea area, obviously, is in southern Israel. Here you have Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. Here you have Jerusalem, four to six miles away. Here you have Jericho. And so some significant things obviously are happening down south. But the point I'm trying to make today is the Jordan River starts in the north from Mount Hermon. There it goes into the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee receives it. And then the Sea of Galilee lets it out. And it goes, the Jordan River flows again. And if you've ever been baptized in that Jordan, you got baptized not far from where the Sea of Galilee let that Jordan River out. And the Jordan River runs and runs and runs and runs. If you could, if it were possible to get in a boat and to go to Mount Hermon and to ride that Jordan River all the way from the top down through the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea, the way it meanders, it would be over 200 miles in length. But if you tried to measure the Jordan River from above as a bird flies, it would be well less than 200 miles if you took it a straight shot because Israel itself is is not that long. But the point is... The Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. It comes out of the Sea of Galilee. It goes into the Dead Sea. But look at the bottom of the Dead Sea. There's no outlet. The Dead Sea doesn't release it into the Nile River or release it into some other body of water. What does the Dead Sea do? The Dead Sea receives all that beautiful, fresh water. It receives, but it doesn't let it out. It doesn't share it with others. And as a result, this may be the most profound thing that I've said all day. The Dead Sea is dead. You can go to the Dead Sea today. It is, the, the, the mineral composite composition is so high. The salt level is so high. You can, you can lay on the Dead Sea on your back. You can, even if you can't swim, you can float. It is impossible to sink in the Dead Sea because all this salt has accumulated, all these minerals, and they don't have any light. They don't have an outlet. And as a result of no outlet, the Dead Sea is dead. There are no fish. There are no dolphins. There, there are no, there's no aquatic life in the Dead Sea. And I think about that and I think, how many of us are like the Dead Sea? Our blade is dull and so we do come to church. We do get in close contact with others. We do let other people sharpen us and yet we say, yeah, I'm doing all that. I taught the class this morning. I'm in church today. I went to the Dream Center. I'm trying to live right. I'm receiving, receiving, receiving and yet my faith is still dull and so is everything else in my life. What's my problem? I'm telling you what your problem is. Your problem is you're not sharpening anybody else. You don't have an outlet. You're not sharing with others what you have received. Today, Sunday, if we were in Israel, out on that Sea of Galilee, there there are young people in jet skis and boats. They're fishing. They're skiing. There's life. If we went down south to the Dead Sea today, people are floating and saying, isn't this neat? But there's no life there. Because the Dead Sea is dead. Helen Steiner Rice, a great poet, has written a beautiful poem comparing the Sea of Galilee 
to the Dead Sea. And I want to close with this today. She's called this the key to life and living. And the subheading is two Palestinian seas. A favorite story of mine is about two seas in Palestine. One is a sparkling sapphire jewel. Its waters are clean and clear and cool. Along its shores, the children play and travelers seek it on their way. And nature gives so lavishly her choicest gems to the Galilee. But to the south, the Jordan flows into a sea where nothing grows. No splash of fish, no singing bird, no children's laughter is ever heard. The air hangs heavy all around and nature shuns this barren ground. Both seas receive the Jordan's flow. The water is just the same, we know. But one of the seas, like liquid sun, can warm the hearts of everyone, while farther south, another sea is dead and dark and miserly. It takes each drop the Jordan brings, and to each drop it fiercely clings. It hoards and holds the Jordan's waves until, like shackled, captured slaves, the fresh, clear Jordan turns to salt and dies within the Dead Sea's vault. But the Jordan flows on rapturously as it enters and leaves the Galilee for every drop that the Jordan gives becomes a laughing wave that lives. For the Galilee gives back each drop. Its waters flow and never stop. And in the laughing living sea, that takes and gives so generously, we find the way to life and living is not in keeping, but in giving. Helen Rice enters, concludes her poem with these, this line. Yes, there are two Palestinian seas and mankind is fashioned after these. Now, I want to ask you today, as we look at this map, if we put that back up there just for a moment. Well, can you use your imagination? Okay, there's the map. At the top, the Sea of Galilee, receiving and giving. At the bottom, the Dead Sea, receiving and keeping. Which one are you? I can remember when I was in seminary, a professor said, and I, I, I admire this man deeply, but I disagreed with what he said. He said, he talked about how he was in a prayer group with several other men, and, and they would discuss what they had learned in Bible reading and prayer and so on. But he said, we made a decision that we would never share it outside of this group. And I thought, well, that's, that's crazy to me, unless you're sharing something personal. I mean, if God gives you, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, what I tell you in the darkness, speak on the housetops. In other words, what I give you to bless you, you let that in turn be a blessing to others. I'm saying to you today, whether we're in the students or whether we're my age or whether we're older, whatever our age is today, if you would say, John, my blade's kind of dull. I want to give you a challenge today. This week at school, with your family, with your friends, at work, at the plants, wherever you work and live, look for an opportunity this week to sharpen somebody else, to build them up, to encourage them, to instruct and admonish them in their faith, and you will find that as you sharpen others, they too will sharpen you. Amen?
Now, before we pray, as I was finishing this sermon, I thought, now, God, that's, that's some good stuff. I mean, that's all true. That, that's good. But, Lord, at the invitation time, how do you go from telling Christians to sharpen other Christians and to have an out? How do you go from that to helping unsaved people know that they need to be saved? That was kind of where I was thinking late, late in the week. And I felt like God just dropped this thought in my mind. I feel like here's what God said. John, while it is true that it is more blessed to give than to receive, it's also true that you can't give until you have received. In other words, you can't give Christ away if you have not received him yourself. I couldn't come out here and with any effectiveness preach and share Christ with you if I had not already received Christ in my own life. I mean, if my spiritual cup is empty, I can't minister to you out of the overflow. But if my spiritual cup is full, hey, I can. You can't give what you've not received. And today, if you're not sure that you've ever received Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, you say, John, that's me. I'm not sure that I've ever received Christ. How can I do it? Remember what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, ask and you shall receive. The way to receive Christ is by asking for him to forgive you and to save you, by asking him to come into your heart and then by trusting him to do that. With heads bowed and eyes closed, you say, John, I do want to give. I do want to bless others, but I have to begin with me. I have to begin by receiving Christ. Let me help you do that through prayer. Would you pray this right now? Say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for my sins. Come into my heart. Make me a Christian. Save me. And use me to be a blessing to others. Lord, today I receive you by faith, not by sight, by faith, not by feeling, but by faith. I trust you to save me, Jesus. And as I trust you to save me, I thank you today that you have come to live in my heart. Make me a new person and use me going forward to be a blessing to others, to share with others what I've received today in you.